They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes Morgues and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone, this is Bejamite, aka the Terrible Aussie, and welcome to this bonus episode of Bede vs. the Living Dead. Now, these bonus episodes that I'm going to be doing and releasing in between the main episodes are going to be very different from the main episodes of this show because, as we all know, the main show is going to be focusing on all things Night of the Living Dead and as well as George A. Romero's Dead series. However, these bonus episodes are going to be focusing on zombie films outside of that franchise because... As we all know, the original Night of the Living Dead started the zombie genre that we know and love today. And in the the past 56 years since the release of Night of the Living Dead, there have been so many different zombie films. So for these bonus episodes, I thought, you know what? Why don't we just dive into all these different zombie films that have been out since Night of the Living Dead? And we're going to be talking about so many films throughout these bonus episodes. We're going to be talking about some of the more well-known zombie films, some of the more obscure ones, ones that you probably have never even heard of before, and also the ones that some people consider some of the worst ever made. So I'm excited for these bonus episodes because I feel like You know, for this show, in between all the stuff with Night of the Living Dead and as well as Romero's Dead series, you know, it's a good chance to kind of explore other different types of zombie films that are out there. So for this very first bonus episode, I have brought on a very special guest who, of course, has been on multiple episodes of Bead versus the Living Dead. And he is, and I figured, you know what, he'll be the first perfect guest to bring on this bonus episode for this series and that of course is my good friend and as well as the a contributor to the super network marcus wolf turner hello marcus how are you oh man i am back on here one more time i know i keep saying it over and over again but you keep having me back i believe this is my 10th appearance now mm-hmm. indeed on, um... indeed <laughs> your lovely podcast so i'm doing well as you've uh, asked and uh how are you doing uh bud oh not too bad thanks uh keeping busy as per usual uh and recording and editing a lot of podcasts which is definitely a lot of hard work but it's also a lot of fun as well but i'm actually very excited because as much as i am loving doing the main series of the show which this year we're going to be focusing on everything that's associated to dawn of the dead 
I'm I'm excited to kind of go down and explore different types of zombie films from all different aspects of the genre. So that's why I'm very excited for these bonus episodes. You know, I think it's a good idea to kind of explore many different types of zombie films, but at the same time, even kind of sh- shedding light on ones that that most people haven't seen or they haven't seen in quite a while and kind of giving my perspective and also whichever guest joins me's perspective on them as well. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, you know, opening people's eyes up to some hidden gems and hidden monstrosities that are out there. So, you know, you're going to be doing a lot of that with uh, these bonus episodes from the fantastic stuff to the, you know, unknown stuff to the fan to the great stuff to the classic stuff and to the sucky stuff. So you're so you're definitely going to have your work cut out for you. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, but I'm glad you're here, Marcus, to join me for this very first bonus episode. Even though I have done other bonus episodes in the past, but those were kind of more interview episodes, which I will also do, and which I will still do in the future for this show. Uh, but, you know, this is kind of more of the beginning of this particular bonus episode series on different zombie films. So for this very first one, Marcus, the very first episode of the show, of course, was on Night of the Living Dead. Which is being, which not only was the film that kickstarted the modern zombie film as we know it, fifty six years later, considered still one of the greatest zombie films of all time. So I thought it'd be interesting to for this bonus episode to dive into a zombie film that's considered one of the worst of all time. which funnily enough actually came out 35 years after the release of night of the living dead and that of course we're going to be talking about the infamous 2023 film house of the dead it was a nightmare it all started a few days ago Where do you hide when they're everywhere? Everywhere. What do you do when there's no way out? How do you kill what's already dead? Any way you can. Like I said, it all started a few days ago. Doesn't this bother any of you? We're on the island where the party of the year is supposed to be happening, but it's completely deserted. Well, they sure as hell did not go to 7-Eleven to get more booze. Can't hear anything. Neither do I. Run! Run! There must be some kind of scientific explanation for this. It's not human. It's like it's been mutated. So, what now? We send them back to hell. Is that you, Matt? Right 
The only way to make it back alive is to send them all back to the House of the Dead. I've been waiting for you for a long time. Which, of course, was directed by Uwe Boll. Screenplay by Dave Parker and Mark Altman from a story by Mark Altman and Dan Bates, which, of course, is based on the video game series The House of the Dead by the Sega Corporation and WoW Entertainment. And this film stars Jonathan Cherry, Una Gora, Clint Howard, Ellie Cornell, Tyrone Litzo, Will Sanderson, Anuka Akuma, Kira Clavel, Sonia Saloma, Michael Eklund, David Plaffey, Erica Durant, and Jürgen Prochnow. And of course, the plot summary for this film, which I am reading off IMDb, is... A group of college students travels to a mysterious island to attend a rave, which soon is taken over by bloodthirsty zombies. House of the Dead, of course, is based on the very popular video game series that was launched in 1996 by Sega. And it's kind of a... Actually, now that I think about it, 1996 was actually a big year for zombie video games. So not only was the first House of the Dead video game released that year, part in all arcades all over the world. That was also the same year that Capcom released the very first Resident Evil game as well. And both of these games were the ones that kick re helped kind of restart the zombie genre that we know and love today, at least in popular culture. In terms of films, that wouldn't happen until at least another few years later, but the original House of the Dead game, along with Resident Evil, were kind of the f video games that at least brought back that appetite for all things zombie media. As we all know, during the mid-90s, video games were being made in the films to various degrees of success. You had, of course, the Super Mario Brothers movie, Double Dragon, mm -hmm. Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, the movie. I would even say what kind of helped House of the Dead get made into a film was, of course, the release of the very first Resident Evil film by Paul W.S. Anderson. So that film became a sleeper success when it came out. And, of course, it would go on to spawn a multi-film franchise. So you could imagine that Sega, of course, wanted to make House of the Dead into a movie. And they actually were trying for quite a number of years to get it off the ground. And they managed to, in 2003, with the help of a little German director by the name of Uwe Boll, who at this point no one had ever heard of before. He was a filmmaker who primarily most of his films were made in Germany, but then eventually he came over to Canada to start working on a few films and made a few indies under his plate. But of course, House of the Dead would be the film that would make him into a household name, for better or worse. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> So there is a lot to say about House of the Dead. And, of course, this was a film that was released on October 10th, 2003. And it had a budget of $12 million and made only $13.8 at the box office. And review-wise, uh, let's just say it did not have the best reviews. And... <laughs> And it is, <laughs> it has a 3% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and as well has been considered as the 41st of the 100 worst reviews of the 
2000s. It is a film that also has a very low rating on IMDb with a rating of 2.1 out of 10. So it's fair to say that when this movie came out, it pretty much was was hated by everybody and has since been considered as not only one of the worst video game adaptations of all time, but just one of the worst films ever made. But the question is, though, what did we think of House of the Dead? So, Marcus, now knowing kind of the history a little bit of House of the Dead, what are your thoughts on this 2003 film from Uwe Boll? <laughs> you know, I don't even call him Uwe. I call him Uwe Boll. <laughs> that's the name that he deserves i recall seeing this movie in the theater when it was released and let me tell you it was one of the rare times where i well first i wanted to walk out of the movie theater it's, it's one of the rare times that's happened and when it was finally over after a grueling, what, hour and 30 minutes? <laughs> like, <laughs> I literally wanted my money back. And that has never happened to me, you know, up until that time. I think the only other time that has happened in my life was uh, probably when I saw uh, A Good Day to Die Hard, a.k.a. Die Hard 5, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it, and since then... <laughs> Since then, I have seen this movie eight times because it, <laughs> yeah, I have seen it eight times. And I will tell you why. Because when I have told people just how god awful it is, people did not believe me. So I have literally showed this movie to my skeptical friends and associates seven no uh, six more times than i than when i originally watched it because it it has to be seen to be believed because th they didn't believe it <laughs> you know it's it is it completely earns its title as like one of the worst films ever made you know um i feel like it's worse than than birdemic or baby geniuses 2 or most of Steven Seagal's films when he was, you know, during his DVD era, you know, um, worse than some of the, the 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 movies that the internet deems like worst of all of all time, like, you know, Battlefield Earth or Troll 2 or Batman and Robin or Dragon Ball Evolution. You know, the only film I feel like is actually probably worse than this is probably uh, uh, Man hands of fate <laughs> but, <laughs> but the only reason why we even know about that movie is science theater 3000 so i don't particularly count that one because otherwise that movie probably never would have gotten any kind of exposure or spotlight this monstrosity was actually released in in theaters people paid to see this i paid to see this and it, it, it's it's like and this isn't even any, even any kind of emotional response or anything it is objectively a disgusting and reprehensible film by pretty much all metrics of basic humanity and common decency it's like one of those type of films that sits in your forefront and in the background of your mind and just kind of rots away everything 
we'll, we're going to talk about it. But it, it's, it, I don't even think our discussion <laughs> today, I mean, we're certainly going to try, but I don't even think our discussion today is going to do it justice on just how awful this freaking film really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, where to start with House of the Dead? Well, I should say right off the bat, like before I saw this movie, I was very much aware of the video games because when I was younger and frequent arcades a lot, I would all every now and again, I would play the House of the Dead video game. So I was pretty much already aware of the game and what it was like. So, and of course, you know, I knew about all the different movies based on video games that had come out. Some of them have been guilty pleasures for me, like the Super Mario Brothers movie and as well as uh, Street Fighter, the movie. For me, I think up, up to that point, like Mortal Kombat, I would say was the, and definitely still is one of the best movies based on a video game and even the first Resident Evil film as well. So yeah. when I heard that House of the Dead was being made into... A movie. I was very curious because I thought, okay, you know, I I enjoyed the game. I'm kind of curious to see what they do with the movie version. And when you kind of read about everything that was going on behind the scenes of this movie, and that Uvi Bowl said that this film was going to be more of a prequel to the video games, I thought, okay, that's all right. You know, no problem with that whatsoever. You know, it's a good way to kind of know more about the history behind the story of these games that instead of just being dropped into it without any context whatsoever. Now, House of the Dead did not get released in cinemas here in Australia, at least not from what I remember. But I do remember when I went down to the video shop and it was there and I thought, okay, I'll rent this out and check it out. And mind you, this was just after hearing all the, the terrible reviews for this film. Like, Every website I was reading gave nothing but negative reviews (laughs) on this film. And I'm one of those people, like, if you tell me that a movie is bad or considered, like, one of the worst of all time, now, most people will be like, oh, yeah, I won't see it then, you know, I'll watch good movies. I'm the complete opposite. If you tell me something is absolutely terrible beyond belief, I am more excited to see it. I'm one of those people, it's like, because I watch a lot of movies all the time, especially bad movies. And I've seen some truly, truly horrendous stuff. So I'm always Mm. on the lookout for anything that is bad. And so when I sat down to watch this film, it was everything I expected and everything I did not expect at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much every review that I had read up to that point was exactly right about this film. This movie is truly terrible. Yeah, see, that's the thing, though. You were, like, the blow was kind of softened for you, you know, mm. because you were going in there thinking, like, okay, well, everybody says this this is awful, it's crappy, it's sucky. Okay, I'm going to go see for myself, but I am at least somewhat prepared if I see something bad, like I'm looking forward for it. Yeah. When, when I go see it, I was completely lied to (laughs) in every capacity. Like nobody warned us. There was, there was nothing that really came out that really said anything about its quality before it was released. 
by critics before it was released. I, I, I don't think it was. Whoever did the marketing for it knew exactly what they were doing. Like, mm. it, it, they didn't say it was made by Uwe Boll, but at the time, nobody knew who he was at the time, you know, but still, it didn't say, you know. I still remember seeing a TV spot of it, uh, of the movie, and it made it seem like it was this big, action-packed, like, zombie film, and, and they had, like, a DMX song playing, like, during the spot. <laughs> so, it's like, you, you watch it, you're like, oh, and it looks like it's going to be a very exciting movie. And when I tell you that in the theater, you could feel <laughs> like you, you could literally the, the anger and the resentment and the I just got screwed over. It's like everybody was watching <laughs> this movie. Like it, it, There was so many parts in this movie where people were just dead silent. Oh, oh, or you know, they'll they'll respond nothing that happened on screen. There was absolutely nothing of that. <laughs> Even parts that were supposed to have something there. It, it, <laughs> it was by far one of one of the one of we're all watching a train wreck that we're a part of and we can't get away. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so on on your front, I'm actually kind of happy for you because you at least were prepared. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut Oh, that's all right. That's all right. Well, I guess um <laughs> so I watched it and I'm not gonna lie, I did you I did kind of something very similar to you, Marcus, every now and again. I have gone back to this movie. And I think I may have seen this movie since that first viewing uh, at least another two more times. And I don't know if my recent viewing in prep for this episode is my third or fourth, but I know I have gone back to this movie a few times. And I think one of the reasons why that is, is it is an absolute trade wreck from beginning to end. I mean, this is the film that pretty much put Uwe Boll on the map in terms of filmmakers who a lot of people consider one of the worst of all time. And even I remember when this movie came out, immediately Uwe Boll got the reputation as being the next Ed Wood in terms of uh, filmmakers. And I can definitely see that because, and here's the thing though I find interesting about Uwe Boll, and I know quite a few people who consider House of the Dead as one of the worst films of all time. Personally, even though it is a truly terrible film, I do find it watchable, which is strange. I don't know what it is about this film that sometimes every couple of years I'll go back to it, but I wouldn't say it's like a so bad it's good film like The Room or Troll 2 or, or any other ones that I've championed over the years. I guess to me it's that the fact that that kind of trade wreck kind of quality about it and the fact that every decision that went into this film from the performances the writing the direction and just some of the ideas that Uwe Ball just put into this film is just mind-boggling and very misguided and you just can't help but be like sitting there this movie literally is a car crash and you're and you can't look away from it 
And I think that's mm. one of the things that makes it such an interesting film to me and why, at least as a bad film, I find it watchable. And also, compared to other movies I have seen since this one, uh, this is definitely far from being the worst movie I've ever seen because I've seen some truly, truly horrible stuff. And I would even say it's not even the worst Uwe Boll film. I've seen, actually, I have a weird kind of fascination with Uwe Boll. I, after when this movie came out, I tried to watch as many of his films <laughs> as I possibly could. And I've even seen some of the ones that most people haven't even seen. Like one of the ones he made before this film was a film called Sanctimonium with Casper uh, Van Deen. And it essentially basically is his american psycho-esque film and that movie mm. was also <laughs> pretty bad as well even though from what i remember casper van Dyke was actually pretty decent in it in this kind of patrick bateman-esque role and all the other movies that he's made since like blood rain alone in the dark <laughs> in the Heather. name of the king a dungeon siege tale um these are definitely bad movies but out of at least those first four that he made of you know the video game films that he made i would say alone in the dark i think is the absolute worst one mainly because it's so convoluted and quite boring and it's also quite hard to follow it doesn't really have that kind of train wreck quality as uh, house of the dead does or even something like in the name of the king which i find unintentionally hilarious as a film <laughs> because you can clearly tell nobody was giving a shit in that film and that film was full of some very over-the-top performances like the late great Ray Liotta playing the villain in that film and being so over-the-top with his performance mm -hmm. that I, I was just laughing my ass off and also even Blood Rain also has its unintentionally funny moments as well like Billy Zane's bizarre wig in that film or <laughs> Ben Kingsley clearly doing his line readings that he's just clearly just reading off cue cards <laughs> that's what he's acting it was like but House of the Dead though going back to it it is a trade wreck in so many ways and I mean where do you even start with this film um oh man but uh, I guess the I guess my first question <laughs> for you, Marcus, is like, have you played the original video games that this film is based on? Oh yeah, I used to go to the arcade, and House of the Dead was one of the rare shooters that I would play. You know, so I was very familiar with the video game before you know the movie came out. Again, it was one of the reasons why I was excited about watching it. You know, because you know video game adaptations. Uh, they, they, they're, they're, they've reached a new mecca, a golden age right now. But back then, <laughs> you know, they were, they were very, very up and down. You know, a lot of studios were not really taking too many chances on them. So whenever mm. one was coming out, you know, it, it became like a particularly big event. You know, because hmm. I, you know, I, re I, re I recall when Mortal Kombat first came out and Mortal Kombat Annihilation and, you know, Street Fighter. I remember standing in line for three hours to go watch Street Fighter. Whenever a, a VGA was was made, it was a big deal. Another reason why so many of us were excited about this, you know, because there weren't there weren't many shooters that were made into into movies. You know, so actually, I think this was the first one, really, now that I think about it. 
I think it oh, was, it yeah. Be. Like, this was the first one. You know, granted, everybody wanted uh, Wolfenstein or Doom. <laughs> this was the first one. So, so many fans of the of the game were just, you know, over the over the heels over this. You know, we we were we were excited, which I think is another reason why it hurt so badly when this is what we got for another Mortal Kombat or or, or maybe even another, you know, uh, Mario Brothers. Because it's as much as Mario Brothers, it was like like a cokehead's nightmare. At least that film. Like oddities and personality, a lot of stuff you could kind of get into, even though none of that was ever in any of the, any of that any of the games. You know, it, mm. it was still just like something you could really get into just for the 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 the, the eccentricity of it all. But this had none of that, <laughs> so it, it it hurt so bad. And it and I'm not gonna lie to you, it it still hurts like. Uh, not not in a way where it's like oh no you know the genre but I would say like my my because I saw Alone in the Dark yeah and like my experience with that was like with the reverse I was prepared for it because we both so mm. <laughs> I was I was ready so that one as bad as it is and don't and it does like earn its moniker as like one of the worst. That one is a that I was prepared for that one, so that mm. one didn't really like throughout that movie. I was just like, well, typical bowl, typical bowl, typical bowl, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I guess we need to talk about because what's going to be different about these bonus episodes compared to the main show is that we're not going to be doing a recap of the plot for these films we're just basically just going to dive in and discuss all different facets of the film in question and uh i guess where to start with this film i think we it's the best thing we need to do is we got to talk about one of the most infamous aspects of this film is for some bizarre reason and so far i am still befuddled why this is in the film and at certain points during the film, there's footage from the actual game that pops up. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good place to start, B. Because yeah, oh my god! <laughs> Especially because if you know the plot of the first game, it isn't on an island; it's in a castle. Yeah, mm. there's just random moments where they just show quick clips from the game in this film and in even a just random moments even in like they use them a lot in some of the big action set pieces particularly in the big one where all of our main characters try have to fight off a whole bunch of zombies to get to the house in question but even then like these clips just pop up everywhere at certain points in the movie even if it's just characters talking and it is bizarre my friend yeah like it's it's at the very beginning we have this stupid like expositional narration with one of our characters and it, like during like the title card and the, the credits we get a lot of footage from the video game which is very distorted you know of course you okay well it's just gonna appear but then th th this crap's like pops up throughout the film like 
to the to the point where it, it it's it's almost downright disrespectful because <laughs> it's like like at first it's kind of iffy whatever but then really do it during the action scenes when things are quiet when uh people are just talking doesn't make any sense and the only thing honestly it makes you think about is, is just playing the game <laughs> you know something you could obviously be doing now instead of watching this and yeah i don't know who like this is bull all the way but i'm still surprised that like no one told him that this was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it doesn't surprise yeah, me. About- like, oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Like, it's interesting because I know after the release of this film that pretty much I know Uwe Boll wanted to make uh, Warcraft into a movie or uh, Metal Gear Solid into a film. And the makers behind those games were like, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's why he kind of went after games that basically weren't even really in the public consciousness that much anymore up to that point. Like, House of the Dead definitely was, but I think after then, Uwe Boll kind of just went after video games that were kind of used to be big, but were kind of forgotten about. So he was able to get the rights to those like Alone in the Dark and Dungeon Siege and blood rain and uh, postal as well and it was easy for him to make those into a film and another reason too why he was able to do that was because of the tax loop as well so that was why he was also able to get all these films up and running even though none of them made money and also had big budgets as well so it's an interesting thing to look into but like, I would get using the video game footage through the opening credits of the film. Like, I could definitely get that if it was only just placed there. But the fact that it's used sporadically throughout this film is just bizarre. And, <laughs> and really doesn't add anything to the movie. No, I mean, it's it's really telling that even, like, the older um video game adaptations didn't do that no you know double dragon didn't do that mario Bros. didn't do that street fighter didn't do that none of the older you know vgas did that at all again i don't understand why he thought this was a good idea and the fact that he was still able to grab up other video game adaptations after this Mm. I, I, you know, I still say this, but nobody ever listens to me, but I still say it. He, he, he literally decimated the, the genre for so many years. Mm. He lived it in freaking dredges of like putrid insignificance for a very long time. It, it, it took a while for, you know, studios to think that they could make any kind of money or make any kind of decent film with, you know, with these games. He just he just destroyed so masterfully. And I'll tell anybody this, I will die on this hill. I, I have no problem with it, you know, because it's the truth. Because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Even now, it still doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense how he was able to still obtain funding for his films. It Because it, as you said, they weren't making any money. 
hey, how? <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, it, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. And um, also, Marcus, I'm sort of setting, setting a theme with uh, with this show. Is it just me, or should zombie movies and raves not associate each with each other anymore? Because we, on the main episodes, talked about Return of the Living Dead, Rave to the Grave, which, of course, was a zombie <laughs> film centered around a rave. But this movie beat that one by two years by having pretty much most of the action take place on an island where th- the characters are going there because of a rave. And I got to say... What is it about raves in movies that just don't look like actual raves? Hello? What you doing over there? Uh, good evening. Beautiful day, isn't it? You got yourself some sort of hearing disability? I ask you a question. Uh, come to try to your boat, sir. Oh, you do, huh? Well, that's too bad. Because this here's a fishing boat, not the Pacific Princess. Why don't you try the Yellow Pages? We've got to get to this uh, this party. There's an island, and we were hoping to use your boat. You're not the sharpest tool in the shed, are you? I said shove off. Or don't you spreck into English. Why don't you just name your price, and we can uh, skip the crotchety old man on the sea routine. Man's got to eat, right? What part of shove off didn't you understand? Hold it. Jeez, who's the U-boat commander? Quando much? No. Uh, what? How much? Uh, $300 now fair? Uh, about $600, mine. $600? No, no way. That's crazy. No one no. is talking to you. Where are you headed, girls? Huh? I don't know. We got this map. It's uh, somewhere in the San Juans. You must know where that is, right, Skipper? You crazy? They crazy. No, I don't think so. Excuse me? I said forget it. Yeah, forget it. Forget it. I mean, stop talking. Stop walking. Why? 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 They always ask why. You know what they call this island? Isla del Morte. Morte. That's Spanish for death. In case you don't speak Mexican. I didn't really go to raves myself when I was younger. Like, I just went to nightclubs and stuff like that. But I never went to full-blown raves. And every time I see one in a movie particularly in a horror film they they just don't look like that's how raves actually work (laughs) because you got this one outside like i'm sure there were raves outside but i don't know it kind of feels like having a rave outside kind of kind of makes it feel kind of pointless as well and also you could definitely tell singer were all in on this movie because during uh one of the dj sets that you see the big singer side behind the dj and because <laughs> you can honestly tell that singer thought oh this is gonna be this is gonna be great movie we're gonna be all in on this but oh my sweet summer child um <laughs> yeah no i i can answer that question for you no that is not how raves look because i've been to raves and raves do not look anything close to that. Ironically, mm. as much as you did not like that movie, and I didn't particularly care for it either, I feel like Rave to the Grave was actually kind of the right ballpark. It had a stupid location, but 
the 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 crowd, the 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 DJs, you know, setup. Yeah, that a little bit more like a rave. Don't actually have people at it. Like this one, what thirty people? That's not a rave. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think there were literally only thirty people at this rave. Yeah, like thirty people, and it's not. I I feel like the only way you, if you're rich, like. It, it, regular people aren't going to go to a rave on an island. They're going to go to a rave that they that they can get to. Yeah, <laughs> and and also that's probably why there weren't that many people there. And also, let's not forget, Marcus, yeah. that essentially, like the location of this rave, it wasn't like in a clearing or anything like that. It's literally in a wooded area surrounded by trees yeah. and shrubs and bushes and everything so i'm thinking like if i was running a rave i would do it out like say in a field somewhere if i'm doing an outdoor rave where mm -hmm. people can easily move around and all that but i think having it in this location and I, I honestly think this had to mostly do for budgetary reasons or something like that but it just everything about this rave setup just did not feel accurate to me no because much like everything else in this movie this is Uwe Boll's idea of what he believes a rave could be mm. and 100% wrong <laughs> <laughs> so, you know we have to remember that you know this this whole thing is from the perspective of Uwe Boll he does not know what he's doing <laughs> obviously <laughs> so I mean, you and I could come up with better than this, and we're both in comas, you know. So <laughs> it's it, 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 and that's what also makes it so hilarious because you, you, you're watching this and you're like, you, this is not what this is supposed to be. This is not what that's supposed to be. This is wrong. That's wrong. You can literally look at everything on the screen and like pinpoint what's wrong with the thing because he does such a such a bad job of creating any kind of, I guess you could say movie magic for you mm. to kind of, you know, immerse yourself in. Because, you know, let's be honest with ourselves here. You've seen a lot of bad movies. I see a lot of bad movies. But a lot of them do have, like, a tendency to create an, a tone where mm. you can kind of get into it and then you can honestly let go of all the things that are incorrect or, you know, things that are off because... You know, the, the entire thing still kind of works for you. This does not. So you are able to really pinpoint everything that's wrong <laughs> with the production and, and all that, you know, because it's all right there. I mean, Bold doesn't really make any kind of effort to hide any of this stuff. Like, <laughs> I, I swear, there's there's one part where a zombie leaps out at somebody and you can see the springboard. <laughs> on the ground punch up it's right there oh, like, come on. you couldn't you couldn't cover that up with a tarp or something you couldn't cover that up with some bushes or some leaves it's right there you know <laughs> it's like, and there's so many examples of that <laughs> exactly exactly and also like speaking of like a lot of continuity errors uh there's a lot of them throughout this film where basically you're right though like some of the times where you see the zombies in action you can definitely see either the wires flipping them around or they are 
the springboards are there in full view. But even the simple things where characters have a gun, and we have to talk about this scene in a second because I need to talk about it. But in the big battle sequence, you'll see characters holding a specific weapon, and then when the the does the bullet time thing, they have they have they're they're holding a completely different weapon. <laughs> it's almost like this film has no did not have a script supervisor at all or a continuity supervisor to make sure none of this stuff was happening. But also, like I had to laugh where basically you have uh, Jürgen Prochnow who plays Captain Kirk in this film and yes they do make a joke about that in the film so when he and uh his uh shipmate played by clint howard uh taking off all these boxes that they have hidden on their boat on their side of the island it is raining down hard but yet when we go back to our main characters at the rave or if they're walking through the forest there's no rain at all. Like it's only really only raining in that <laughs> on that section where the where Yoga Prokdal's uh, boat is. Oh yeah, there, there, there's so many continuity errors in this. If we went through all of them, we'd probably be here for like two three hours. Oh yeah, like like I said, it's all right there. <laughs> you know, like Uwe makes no attempt whatsoever to like hide any of this or try to like fine tune it and you're right and then the dip on the next have on like different clothing one second and then different clothing the next as you said the rain one one side of the island no rain on the other uh there's even parts in this movie during like action sequences you can see people in the background just standing there <laughs> even moving. like and there's even like we're about the you know the big scene but parts where you see characters in the background just standing there not doing anything I, I guess he probably thought that we would be so focused on happening in front of us that we wouldn't have i don't know vision and like mm -hmm. see the other stuff on the screen it's you know but, but uh, you know it, it's all it's so blatant it, it, that's why honestly that's why i think his productions are just full of yes men there's no possible way that nobody else working on any of this stuff wouldn't say okay you know this doesn't look right or maybe we should change this or maybe we should switch this over here or or why does my character have a, a, a eagle and a shotgun the next oh my god well, you're right, though. You're absolutely right. You can tell that Uwe Boll definitely has a lot of say when it comes to the making of his films. And like reading a lot of stuff behind the scenes on a lot of the work he has made. I remember um, on the film, like watching a documentary called uh, Tales from the Script, which is a documentary that kind of talks to a bunch of Hollywood screenwriters about their experiences in Hollywood. And it's actually a great documentary that's worth checking out if you haven't seen it, just to hear everyone's different uh, experiences. Now, in that documentary, uh, they interviewed uh, actress and screenwriter Genevieve Turner, who, of course, co 
wrote the film American Psycho and as well as starred in a whole bunch of films as well. So she worked with Uwe Boll on Blood Rain. So, <laughs> and in the documentary from what I remember, she pretty much said, said that, like, and I'm quoting, and I've got this information from the film's Wikipedia page, but also in the documentary as well, that uh, Genevieve Turner turned in her first draft for the script two weeks late, and then rather asked for redrafts, Boll accepted it, then made many of his own changes, and then he asked the actors to take a crack at it. Turner estimated that 20% of her script was actually filmed. And a lot of the writers who have worked with Uwe Boll have said pretty much the same thing. Like, they'll turn in their script for the film, and then Uwe Boll just changes so much that in the end, like, barely the script that they work on is in the film. Even uh, Dave Parker, who is a filmmaker in his own right and has worked with on projects like uh, The Hills Run Red, which he also directed, and also on a lot of Full Moon productions, has even stated that that his version of the screenplay was trashed and rewritten, and what wound it up on the screen was completely different from what he wrote. So... <laughs> Scripts are late. Writers are two years late. I was two weeks late. Uwe Bull calls me, this is fucking disgusting. You lied to me. Where is my script? I was like, whoa. I just called my manager. I was like, that man is never allowed to call me again. And uh, he never did. But I delivered the script probably a week after that. And uh, he's like, we love it. We go into production tomorrow. I was like, oh my God. Like, it was a first draft. It was a, you know, nasty little scrappy little draft of a script that I was like, you know, hoping that, you know, the process begins. You say what you think, we blah, 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 it becomes something beautiful. No, into production. And I just want to say for the record, for the, anyone who's seen Blood Rain, that I would say that about 20% of what I wrote is on the screen. The producer called me when the movie was just being finished and he said, don't be alarmed, Gwen. Uva changed a lot of the script. Uva doesn't really speak English. And then he let the actors take a crack at it. But I was just like, letting go. I'm gonna let go. And I have to say that the only person at the premiere at Man's Chinese Theater who was laughing out loud was me. I was laughing out loud like, oh my God. It's like a $25 million movie and it blows. I mean, it's like the worst movie ever made. It's like. Is it showgirls worthy in terms of like how it's so bad that it's campy? I think it is. I think it's going to ripen. So you can definitely get a sense of that. Like Uwe Boll is just going full tilt into making these films his own. And it doesn't surprise me after a while he started, like he all had wrote a lot of his own films before he made this one. And then not long after this, he would continue to write even more or co-write more of his films i guess his more non-video game productions because he's he would always have somebody else write his video game movies and then when it came to his original projects he would write or co-write them himself so you can get definitely get the sense of that in this film and also you can obviously tell that the actors are really struggling with the material because 
even though this film is full of actors who I recognize from other works, like Jonathan Cherry and Michael Eklund and Erica Durant, who, of course, played Lois Lane on Smallville. This was like one of her first early roles, even though it's only a small role in this one. But, of course, she's probably one of the most famous people to come out of this film. You can definitely tell that they're just straddled with terrible dialogue, uh, characters who are not very well developed. But at the same time, though, they're really... Nobody really gives a good performance in this film. And, but at, but you can obviously tell that someone like Clint Howard, who plays the role of the of Kurt's first mate, Salish, you can definitely tell Clint Howard knows exactly what type of film he is in and is just playing it up to the nth degree by playing basically like, oh, we're not going to go on this island. There's there's evil on that island. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, because at the time, I, when I first saw this movie, I remember thinking, how did Clint, He even he deserved better, you know? <laughs> so it's like, Oh, but you're right. You know, he he knew exactly the type of film he was in. So he played it up exactly the way it was supposed to. But he, you know what's ironic about Clint Howard? Like, he always seems to know exactly the type of film that he's in. Mm. And he always just comes out kind of untouchable. Oh, definitely, I mean, definitely. I if, like, I don't know if it's because, you know, he's a Howard, but it, it, it or it's just like his his skill there's been so many times that he's been in these excessively bad films and he was perfectly fine in them. Like, he, like it seemed like everything, like nothing touched him. Nothing touched his performance at all. You know? So it is the same here. I mean, he's, he's dressed like the Morton salt girl, you know, or, <laughs> or you know, or his little slicker and everything. And it, it and, which is ironic because I feel like other than him and Liberty, <laughs> they're the only two people who have like any kind of color in their outfits. Yeah. <laughs> we, we definitely got to talk about Liberty. Um, you know but... what? I'm glad you brought Liberty up, but I, but before we get to her, I do want to talk about like Clint Howard. Like, I mean, what is Clint Howard is not working on his brother's films because Ron Howard always has a role for Clint in a lot of his films. But every mm. now and again, but that's the thing though. Clint Howard has kind of just enjoyed kind of starring in so many B movies as well. Like every now and again, he'll star in like an A grade film, but most of the time he'll star in kind of small budget indie films or genre films. And I mean, this is a man who will in the same year be in Apollo 13 and also be in the Ice Cream Man or yeah, Bob Wire. I was Wire just thinking or, about Ice Cream Man. Yeah, or even uh, be in uh, That Thing You Do and then Santa with Muscles the same year. Um, <laughs> yeah, he just he just moves through all types of quality, I mean, all types of people who work on this stuff, and he's unscathed. It's, it's, it's oh, yeah. wild. But I think it's like when you have actors like that who are well known as beloved B grade horror actors, and I would put Clint Howard in the same bracket as somebody like Bill Mosley 
or uh, Danielle mm. Harris or Dee Wallace and that, where even though they will star in a film and even if the film is absolutely terrible, they will come out uh, unscathed in it because there's such legends. But also at the same time, you can definitely tell they're at least trying to give a good performance. They're clearly having fun. And you can definitely tell that Clint Howard is having fun in this movie. And and also the most bizarre thing though, and he Clint Howard, even after this film, would star in other Uwe Boll films. Like I know he was in uh the third Blood Raid film, and as well as uh, Assault on Wall Street, uh, the Profane Exhibit. Actually, he was even even a documentary on Uwe Boll called Fuck You All, the Uwe Boll story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but even before this film, he was already into other Uwe Boll films like Blackwoods and Heart uh, of America. So it's very obvious, like, I guess he enjoys working with Uwe Boll as a filmmaker because he has done multiple films with the guy. Or maybe he feels like when he works with Uwe, he, I mean, think about it. Everybody else in this, as you put it, was struggling. Mm. <laughs> you know, like you could tell like the ones who were who were struggling because they didn't really know how to put too much into their characters. And the ones who were struggling because they just didn't really give a damn after a while. Yeah. You know? Because they probably thought, and, and it did happen, like anytime someone seemed like they were kind of poking their head out on putting something competent or serviceable as far as like performances, it's like the fucking movie yanked the rug out from under them or did something that like brought them right back down like to where they were, whether it was like a, a stupid moment or or them being weirdly dubbed. <laughs> That's what made that so weird. Like some people aren't in this movie, they sound like they're dubbed, even though they're not. So it almost feels like ooh, we could have distorted or or switched up the sound a little bit in their voices. Mm. Uh, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because even watching the film, like the audio is like really weird in this film. Like my subtitles when I was watching this film were picking up dialogue I could barely even hear, and also. The dialogue, yeah, at times it can be just crystal clear and you can hear it, but other times, like, it's everyone is so soft-spoken or the or the volume is so low, you can barely hear anyone. You kind of have to pay attention to when they are talking in this film. And, and it's just like little inconsistencies like that that are just so bizarre. Yeah, I, I and I, and again, I know I'm kind of painting Uwe to be like this, 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 this crappy mastermind, but I, uh, you know, I kind of feel like he was doing all this crap on purpose, you know, mm. <laughs> you put it like people write these scripts together and then he wants to make it own so badly that he will literally like change everything someone has or, or, or something like that. And it makes sense because I, I sincerely doubt that in the original screenplay of this movie that Parker and is it is it Altman? Altman. Mark Altman, yeah. Altman. So, okay, so I, I, I sincerely doubt that Parker and Altman had it in the original screenplay 
that these characters did these things, said these things, these zombies would run, leap, swim, spit, do all this weird crap. And they'd all look completely different. Some look like zombies, some look like mummies, some look like regular people, some look like sludge monsters. <laughs> I sincerely doubt that all of this was in the outline for this movie. But all of it is just, <laughs> it's just, it's just big things or little things that we did throughout the entire production in order to stifle his creation, but make the film thing that is almost unrecognizable, but completely his own. <laughs> definitely, definitely. But then again, Mark Altman, who co-wrote this film, he actually would go on to write the script for the director video sequel, House of the Dead 2. So... Mm. Be that what you will. I don't know. Um... <laughs> I, don't know. I just, you're right about that, but I just I'll be leaping into conspiracy theory territory. But I just, I just can't help but to think this that this finished product is not what anybody else wants. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Know. I just okay. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like when uh, House of the Dead Two came out, it was directed by a different person, and I think it would be Bob was still involved, but only as a producer or an executive producer. So that would kind of explain a lot of things. But yeah, I think we need to talk about the big action set piece in the film with our main characters oh, yeah. going up against a bunch of zombies as they get to the house. And this is, and we'll also talk about, in my opinion, one of the unsung heroes of this film is of course the character of liberty played by kira clavel you know what i liked liberty in this movie i liked kira clavel's performance i think out of all the younger actors in this film because a lot of the younger actors definitely are giving very bland or very poor performances but she actually gives a spark to this film when she's on screen and i also love the fact like between her and other characters like a lot of characters just randomly know martial arts for no apparent reason <laughs> <laughs> and also she was totally badass while she's wearing this uh, american jumpsuit or like leather jumpsuit going around shooting kicking and fighting zombies and i was actually pretty sad when they uh, when she died yeah you know <laughs> I, again, I have another theory. You know, <laughs> like I feel like Uwe has like this weird kind of Asian Americana thing going on with, with Liberty because mm. you know she's. I, I'm sorry, but everybody else in the movie seems to have on like regular outfits, and she has on this this American flag spandex tight onesie, and. <laughs> <laughs> she is cold. Like you can you can see her during the movie. She is like <laughs> everybody else has on like different layers of clothing and she is just shivering. <laughs> like, you can see her breath. And I I I, I kind of laughed because I was like, she's like, because in some parts she's like, come on, let's go. And I'm like, yeah, get through your line. So go, I'm cold. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> But but no, she's you know I I will admit she's a pretty good character. You know she's mm. like kicking ass and taking names, and also I think the reason why she's moving around so much is because she's cold. So she has to like <laughs> fight and stuff. 
to like get her blood uh, pumping so she can get warm. <laughs> so it's like, because you you know you were as you recall, she jumps into like the water uh, during that part where they try to get to the boat, and she gets submerged underwater by a zombie. And she continues to wear that spandex throughout the entire film. Nobody offers, offers her a jacket. <laughs> Nobody offers <laughs> her. <laughs> so she's just running around, kicking and stabbing and fighting. And yeah, yeah. And you're right. I feel like she is the only person, uh, besides Clint, who like puts in something for for this movie. So mm. so you're right. She's she's definitely a favorite. Oh yeah. Jürgen Prochnell as Captain Kurt, I'm still trying to decide if he knew what type of movie he was in, because, you know, <laughs> he's not playing it up like uh, Clint Howard is, but, I mean, it, it's Jürgen Prochnell. I mean, if he's in any movie, of course I'm going to enjoy his performance. And also, they 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 make a, ref, a Dust Booth reference when one of the characters, when they see him, is like, who's the U-boat captain? <laughs> <laughs> But that entire sequence is just <laughs> kind of mind-boggling. And, but at the same time, it kind of amazes me. Like, another thing I sort of completely forgot about this film is just how badly edited it is. <laughs> Particularly oh, in this God, scene, yeah. because the editing is so erratic and all over the place with the mixture of all of our main characters kind of shooting all these different zombies left to right. And you're right that from what I read, there are different layer, different species of zombies in this film. Like some are, you know, a bit more fresh because there's some of the ravers. Others are, have been around a little bit longer, but also you got ones that kind of look like they're out of the, the blind dead series in terms of how decomposed they are. But, in this scene, like, you got all these characters shooting, stabbing, punching, kicking all these zombies. The editing is all over the place. It's <laughs> it's clearly this section was edited by someone who clearly has ADD. Uh, <laughs> also, we have, and I honestly believe this, this was the film that killed the bullet time effect. Yeah. Because there's a lot no, of bullet time that, in this movie. A lot of bullet time. The the the, the 360 rotations. The, oh my god. Like, the, this sequence right here is by far, again, one of the worst. Like, we can't even really describe it properly. It, it, yeah. it's, it doesn't do it justice on just how cringy and asinine and incoherent and just dog shit dumb it is. Like, the lousy edits... The cheap effects, the atrocious uh, slow motion, the, the 360s, the befuddling movements, the lazy transitions, the, the 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 fact that the characters are trying to look badass, but they can't do it for the life of them. <laughs> mm. Except for Liberty, because like, she's cool. <laughs> except for Liberty. But yeah, like it, it it's it is a smorgasbord, a seven-layer dip of, of crap. And my personal <laughs> favorite, my personal favorite is when Alicia just jumps straight up into the air and <laughs> shoots her shotgun. And then the damn, in slow motion, because it's got to be slow motion, 
And the Uwe decides to zoom the camera in on the, I guess, the buck shots or whatever as they break apart. And they look, they don't even look like, they don't even look like shots. They look like fucking um, uh, some kind of weird mutated caterpillars. <laughs> and then a zombie jumps straight up into the air to throw an axe at her. And then the zombie gets hit by the buckshots and flips backwards off the screen. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of zombies that fly in this movie. I, I thought I was like watching a Hong Kong horror film with the amount of zombies that's flipping and flying. And if they got shot, they just went flying and bagging into walls or to other zombies. Like, like in this film, yeah. like, I, I have to admit, like, this entire sequence needs to be seen to be believed. Like, it is, like, everything you could do wrong as a filmmaker is in this scene. And at the same time, though, I kind of enjoy the insanity of the scene because it's, like, it's very much aware, like, Uwe Boll knows exactly what he's doing in this scene, and he doesn't care because he's just going to do it anyway. Back. We gotta get back on that boat, but there's no way I'm going in that water. No, can't go anyway now. It's too far. Besides, we don't know what's still on that boat. What about that house? It's defensible. We'll have shelter. Okay, it's a good idea. We make a run for it as soon as they get back. Yeah, what if they don't come back? What then? They'll come back. Yeah, but what if they don't? What are we gonna do? We, we don't have any weapons or food. I mean, we don't have shit. I should have we do. Kidding me. This is what you had Casper on your ass all night? You're smuggling Cuban cigars? Among other things. Still hard at work smuggling, I see, Victor. <laughs> Don't you just wish you could prove that, Jordan? What are these then? Oh, funny thing is, we just found them here sitting on the beach. Right. Crazy, huh? I'm not gonna worry about that right now. We've got bigger problems. My patrol boat's been destroyed. My first mate is missing. What about Greg Casper? Where is he? Yeah. I don't think he made it. What do you mean you don't think he made it? He's gone. Sorry. Well, we gotta go back there and look for him. Maybe there's a chance he's okay. I mean, we can't just leave him out there. He's dead. But if you don't want to end up just like him, you'll shut up and listen to what she's saying. What else you got in there besides smoke, Captain? Anything useful? Huh. Let me introduce you to my little friend. Said size doesn't matter. Nice. But mine's bigger. Mossberg 500, stainless shotgun with incendiary shells. Ah, saving the best for last. Here you go. Take it. Ah, good choice. Desert Eagle. I like the way you think, girl. Yeah. Again, it, it, it's just one of those. It's just one of those sequences where you're just like, you know, this is not what everybody wanted, mm. you know, for the finished product. You know this, like it. It's written all over. Like I said, there, there's parts during this where people are doing things, and there's zombies in the background just standing there. Characters in the background just standing there. As you said, the the 
the, the switch of the weapons. One second, someone's a shotgun. Next second, they have a pistol. Like, by you, and yeah. uh, it's it happens especially like they all have a character that's running around with a a shotgun, and then the camera will zoom in on them, do the free sixty bullet time effect, and they would have like a completely different weapon, and then it would cut back out, and then in fast motion again. <laughs> having the same weapon they had prior to that moment. But you know what? Watching this movie, like, everyone gives Zack Snyder a lot of shit for his filmmaking choices. But I feel like with his filmmaking choices or whether it's slow-mo and stuff like that, you can definitely tell he's doing that for a reason and for a purpose. Here, Uwe Boll's doing it because, like, he thinks it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> He's he's doing it because he wants to rip off everything. And, exactly. Yeah. And and not even understand like why these original like creators and, and directors and everything did this stuff to begin with. Mm. Like we like we understood why there was bullet in the matrix. We yep. understood why somebody would leap and, and shoot a gun in John Woo films. We yep. knew why there was slow motion in Snyder films. Hell, yep. we even knew why there was lens flare in J.J. Abrams films. Every director has like their 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 signature thing, but you understood why they were doing it in certain parts. Uwe just he just threw everything in a blender and diced up and threw it at the screen and said, okay, this is fine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and you know, and you know, what's the worst part of this higher sequence? What's that? When, oh my God, what was his name? Uh, Rudy. (laughs) Yes. Played by Jonathan Cherry, who the same year as this film was all had a memorable supporting role in Final Destination 2. Yeah, he was fantastic about Destination 2. Absolutely. It, so much so that when I saw that movie, I was like, that can't be him. But yeah, it was him, you know? But no, at the end of this sequence, what does Uwe Bull decide to have uh, Rudy do? Have a quickly edited, frantic flashback of everything that just happened. Oh my God. I'm not going to lie, Marcus, when that that section happened, I couldn't help but laugh because it's like, oh, if you missed, if you fell asleep during the film and missed what happened, here's what happened previously before this moment. (laughs) Oh my God. And you, you know, and you were right. ADHD, whoever edited this, I'm just assuming it was Bull, just, uh, (laughs) they, they, they took a hard line and was like, hey, you know what? I was going to have everything that just happened happen even faster, you know? And there you go. <laughs> For no fucking reason. And mind you, like, <laughs> we haven't even got to the house of the <laughs> that is the, in the title of this movie. And mind you, it is the smallest house I've ever seen, but it, it's like the TARDIS inside. It's a lot bigger than it looks on the outside. Um, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Thank you. Yes. it's It looks like a shack on the outside, but it's a it's a freaking house on the inside. It's a TARDIS. It's a straight up TARDIS. <laughs> but also, like, somehow, like, those zombies could get anywhere and can get inside of anything. 
But yet, this house, they can't get inside this house, especially when Jonathan Cherry and Ellie Cordell, who, you know, for a lot of people will remember as playing Rachel Carruthers in Halloween 4 and 5, they get through a window. She gets her legs bitten off. Somehow, the only thing he does is, like, boarding up the window with a door and just putting a simple thing over it. And somehow, that's stopping the zombies from coming in through the window or even, like, the front door. Like, these zombies can get through any door, but they can't get through that door in particular. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess they I guess they got shy. I don't <laughs> But to be fair, these zombies do a lot of things. Because yeah. when, when Simon decides to blow himself up for no yeah. reason, mm-hmm. plus, he, plus he deserves to get blown up for saying Simon says, because nobody can pull that off. Unless it's Simon Phoenix from Demolition Man, but, but I doubt. <laughs> so these zombies do a lot. They they run, they swim, they leap, they they teleport, they they get shy, they have bullet time, they use weapons, they they, they do everything. <laughs> they do everything, Marcus. <laughs> but we haven't oh. even got to, and I, I and I need to talk about this. One of my yeah. friends on Twitter. Harris Dag, and this is a shout out to you, Harris, if you're listening right now. When I posted that I was watching this movie, he brought up a really good question. What was the bad guy's plan again? (laughs) 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 Because in this film, we do have a villain uh, played Castillo, played by uh, David Palfi. And based on what I have read, he is, I guess, a necromancer who has been using, or I'll write, I'll, I'll see what it is, because basically there's a scene where Kurt reveals the island's history, uh, is that this is home to, to a man named Castillo, who was a Spanish Catholic priest who was banished from Spain in the 15th century for his dark experiments, which the Catholic Church forbade. He murdered the entire crew on the boat, the St. Cristobal, came to the island, enslaved the island's natives, murdered it and murdered anyone who visited the place. Then he created an immortality serum, which he injects himself with, allowing him to live forever and also return dead souls to life and support his cause. But even then, Marcus, even then, I still don't know who Castillo is. <laughs> <laughs> no, because they don't do a very good job of explaining any of this stuff. Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. By the time, yeah. By the, by the time we actually do see him, wait, who are you? <laughs> well, we see him a few times through the film where he's like watching and observing our main characters, but then because oh, yeah. he's got all his face <laughs> just, is all stitched up. But the thing is, though, what I'm confused by is that I swear a few times when we see him watching people, it's just the same shot played a few times. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's why honestly, I, I'm I, I just assumed he was just another zombie because yep. that's what some of these zombies actually were doing. They were just watching them. We even have a freaking zombie do a damn uh oh my uh things moment where it's yes. looking over the the little hill and everybody's hiding under the uh, <laughs> I can't even get it out. But you know what's you know what I'm talking about. You yes. know, we, we even have one of those. So I'm just like, okay, well, um, I guess 
he just wanted to watch. I, so yeah, when we do see, what I love about it is when we do actually see him, he has on like the face of one of the other characters. Yes. <laughs> For some odd reason, like I, I mean, I guess to lure them into a trap, but. I, I mean, at, at that time, did that really matter? I don't, I, I don't know. Though I still love the line, um, uh, "You create these things to be immortal. Why? Um, to to be immortal? You just <laughs> you, you <laughs> it's a damn question. Uh, oh my geez. god, that 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 that's. I'm sorry, that line is up there with. You know, what kind of drugs did you take? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is something. But also, we get uh, towards the kind of the end of the film. Both Rudy and Alicia, they think they have survived. And then, of course, uh, Castillo comes out and there's a massive, like, sword fight between the three of them. And again, how did most of the... How do Rudy and Alicia know martial arts? (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, uh, uh, Alicia gets stabbed. Rudy manages to kill Castillo, or he thinks he has by decapitating him, but he still manages to still attack Rudy with his headless body. And then, of course, uh, Alicia stamps on Castillo's head, killing him for good, and then she dies. And then uh, the FBI finally rock up. And from what I understand, uh, the two FBI agents who rock up, played by Adam J. Harrington and Colin Lawrence, are actually meant to be playing the main characters from the first game, uh, Rogan and G. Oh. Which I did not know because, again, you know, this film barely does anything to (laughs) kind of like tie itself (laughs) to the original game. Hence why they made this into a prequel. And I guess, yeah, these two characters were, you know, kind of going to be introduced to when they would make the sequel. But of course, the sequel would come, but again, it would just stray further away from <laughs> the game. <laughs> and then, of course, we find out his real na- name is Rudolph Curian. And of course, th- that's a reference to the film's villain, uh, who has the last name of Curian. And finally, he, he uses uh, Castillo's... Uh, formula to resurrect Alicia and of course basically it kind of ends really right there with the hint of a sequel <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah I, that's essentially a House of the Dead and what a ride this movie is uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh geez. my god yes but before we uh, wrap up this conversation on uh, House of the Dead. Uh, one thing I will need to say is, uh, even though Ellie Cornell dies in this movie, she manages to come back in the sequel, reprising her role from this one. What? Oh my god. And it's very <laughs> obvious that her character is dead. I mean, her legs were both eaten and chopped off. She did not survive that lack of blood loss. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, oh my god. Now, Marcus, here's an interesting tidbit for you. Uh, even though this movie does have a sequel, House of the Dead 2, which uh, premiered on the Sci-Fi Channel and then was released on DVD, but did you know 
that there is kind of technically a third House of the Dead film. Oh, God, really? Yep. It was uh, a 2006 TV movie called Dead and Deader that was directed by Patrick Dinhunt, co-written by Mark Altman, who, of course, wrote the two previous House of the Dead films. And this film was originally going to be called House of the Dead Free, but the producers behind the film lost the the rights to the film when they were making it, so they changed it to Dead and Deader. And this movie has, like, Dean Cain, Susan Ward, Amin Shinneman, and, yeah, and it was a Sci-Fi Channel original movie. Mm, somehow I'm not surprised by that, especially with, you know, Dean Cain. And also, Ellie Cornell is also in this movie, but playing a different character. Because obviously. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> but before we kind of wrap up our conversation on House of the Dead, now, even though, yes, I'm going to be talking about for these bonus episodes films outside of Night of the Living Dead and Romero's Dead series, but that being said, though, every zombie film in some way, shape, or form has some reference to Night of the Living Dead or uh, the Dead series in particular. And this movie definitely does have one. So we're going to go into a little segment, which I am calling References to the Living Dead. Okay, that's a very simple title, but uh, it's a working one, so we'll stick with that for now. But uh, yeah, so... (laughs) Now, does House of the Dead have any references to to the original classic film of Night of the Living Dead? And it does. Not only does it get referenced, but also the first two sequels, The Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, get referenced because uh, Michael Eklund, who plays the cameraman Hugh, and I forgot Michael Eklund is in this movie because Michael Eklund's one of those character actors who just, pops up in every B-grade sci-fi action or horror film. Like, I mean, he's one of those actors, like, you see him and you're like, oh, he's that guy, because he's, like, in everything. And he, they're showing the scene when Rudy, Hugh, and Liberty uh, show the rest of the gang footage of what happened earlier at the rave, and pretty much uh, Hugh mentions, like, ah, oh, these are... These are like Romero-esque zombies, like out of the Holy Trilogy, night, dawn, and day. Everyone was partying, you know, drinking and dancing and just hanging out having fun. And then these things came and they attacked the wraith, started killing everybody. Those of us that could get away did. We ran. We finally got to the boat, but it wasn't there. These things, they just kept coming and coming and killing. We finally found this house. We ran inside and tried to hide and that's when you guys came I thought you were more of them them who the hell is them who try what what Rudy they were dead people okay guys if you saw the tape you may not want to believe it but those are reanimated corpses just like out of a fucking Romero movie a what a Romero movie you know like the holy trilogy night dawn and day they say he's gonna make twilight of dead one day but I kind of doubt it you know okay I find this all a little hard to believe and also, in a way, you could also say that it also has some kind of plot similarities as well, because the characters do end up in a house, and they have to board up the windows and doors to to make sure the zombies don't get in. And eventually, at some point, uh, 
the characters have to go down into a basement to for shelter and also to to escape and then of course that's when they run into Castillo and find out his evil master plan so yes those are our references to Night of the Living Dead in this film some kind of more plot kind of related but also actual direct references as well and and to me that's kind of the perfect way to start off all these bonus episodes uh because you got a film that actually does mention Night of the Living Dead in its dialogue so I guess that could be a wrap on this conversation of House of the Dead and Marcus your final thoughts overall on this film I mean I mean in this age of cinema you know social media you know everyone being a critic you know we we oftentimes come across you know people who tend to judge films a bit too harshly i mean there's there's a lot of different examples of this you know we we watch a a movie or or a series and you know we have our own little critiques for it but you know some people tend to go way too far with it sometimes it, it, it's it's obvious that you know, this said film is just simply okay or decent or even a good film with just some obvious flaws. I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect film, even though there is plenty of films that we feel are perfect. And it seems like it's always like the loud minority who does this, you know, never mm-hmm. never the vast majority. The reason why I'm speaking on this, <laughs> this particular, like, weird, fashionable trend I feel like these people have no fucking idea what worst actually is (laughs) because that's this everything that is can and has gone wrong in cinema is completely in this movie. (laughs) I mean, honestly, we've been calling it a film, but I feel like that's almost disrespectful. I feel like it's not even a film. It's, 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 it's just an honest to goodness abomination. It's a, it's an enema with a chainsaw. It's a it's a pimple on the keister of freaking entertainment. You know, it, it it's and all of it is is brought to you by Ooh Bull. You know, a man who literally set video game adaptations back so long. And it, it took forever for it to get to a very great place that it is now. You know, we, we had to go through ups, ups and downs, you know, with, you know, the Silent Hill movies, you know, Rampage, uh, Resident Evil, the Tomb Raiders, Final Fantasy Spirits Within, and Final Fantasy Advent Children. You know, and, and once we got to, like, that height, you know, that pinnacle of video game, Castlevania, and Sonic the Hedgehog, and Arcane, and, and Super Mario Brothers, and even Werewolves Within. <laughs> I mean, hell, I think like last week or a week before, you know, The Last of Us won like over several Emmys. And, you know, the genre is thriving right now. But back then, when this fucking thing came out, <laughs> or Alone in the Dark, which whichever one you want to, you know, you know, put there, this was peak ooey bowl suckage. Like, it's not even a bad film that's kind of good or unintentionally funny. It's just a rancid, fucked up thing that that that's bewilders and, and scathes and demeans and seeps and beguiles and almost physically harms you when you watch it. Like, ow, ow, <laughs> ow. <laughs> you know, it, 
the 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 crappy characters, the awful effects, the dumb story, the the torturous moments that defy all logic, story, or coherence. It, it, it's just a, a a petri dish of just ugh, just ugh, ugh, ugh. like you you know that Family Guy episode where Peter, Stewie, Chris, and Brian they 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 drink that bottle of Epicac. Mm-hmm. And they start puking everywhere. Yes. <laughs> and breaking down as they do it. <laughs> I mean, that's this movie. Like, or that's that's this thing. <laughs> that's this thing right here. You know, in, in fact, I'll do you one better. In the later seasons of Family Guy, there's an episode where Brian uh breaks Stewie's time machine and everything starts going in reverse, like time is going backwards. And they literally go back to that moment <laughs> where they're all puking and the vomit starts going back into their mouths. <laughs> and they're like crying and just go, oh, my God, oh, my God, no, you know, and it's a, a hilarious scene. But that's also this movie. It, it's it's it just is not good. We may have found two or three things that are decent about it. Thank you very much, Beatty. But other than that, this has earned its title. It will always have its title. And me personally, I will always consider this one of the worst of the worst. And it's one of the reasons why I tell people all the time, you don't know what suck is. You need to watch Mystery Science Theater 3000 so you can know how films used to be back in the day. Mm. You need to watch Ooey Bull movies so you know just how bad they can be now. And you need to watch stuff on Tubi so you can see also <laughs> how bad things can be. And then you can have that perspective and just relax when it comes to how films and shows are now because as long as they're not anywhere close to this, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for my thoughts, my final thoughts on House of the Dead, like there's no question that this film is terrible from top to bottom. It's badly made. It's poorly written. The direction is just a complete train wreck. The acting is pretty bad. Also, as a zombie film, it just does not work at all. But at the same time, though, I am fascinated by this movie. And I also kind of find it strangely watchable as well. Now, is that, again, because of, is it a so bad it's good movie? I'm saying definitely not. But I guess all the decisions that went into this film just kind of show that everything that went wrong with this film, I just find fascinating and for me as someone who loves filmmaking and has dabbled in filmmaking on and off throughout the years and i would even say that if someone out there is thinking of getting into filmmaking i would say watch house of the dead as a blueprint of of what not to do (laughs) as a filmmaker because pretty much i always say to people all the time you will learn more from watching bad films than you will from good films when it comes to filmmaking because bad films can tell you everything that you need to know on how not to make a film. And House of the Dead is definitely up there for sure. And also, 
like compared to other Uwe Boll films I've seen, and I've seen quite a few, this is definitely not the worst one for me. I think if I had to pick the absolute worst one, I would say Blood Rain 2 Deliverance is probably my absolute least favorite one of his films. But every now and again, Uwe Boll can surprise me and actually deliver something that's kind of decent. Like I remember a couple of years ago, I saw his uh, Vietnam War film, Tunnel Rats, and that was actually a, a surprisingly decent movie. So I don't know, again, whether it's because he's working from his own material rather than directing video game adaptations. But yeah, that that movie was actually pretty decent. So he kept, when he actually puts more effort into his films, he can actually deliver something pretty solid. But yeah, I think House of the Dead <laughs> definitely is not one of those films at all. But at the same time, though, I kind of have to say people need to watch it, mainly just to see how a movie like this can go wrong on so many levels. It has to be seen to be believed. And, and you're right, though, in hence, like, in this day and age, we got more and more people who, through social media who are becoming huge film fans or critics of wanting to learn about movies. Every time I see some of them, like, put, say, a recent big budget movie as one of the worst of the year, like, for an example, like, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania. Like, I've seen a few people even give that as, like, the worst film of the year and stuff. And again, I'm like, Maybe it's because I watch a lot of bad movies all the time, even the stuff that nobody watches. I'm like, you haven't really seen <laughs> anything bad until you've seen the bottom of the barrel stuff that is out there, or even just seen a movie from Uwe Boll. And I have a feeling like if, <laughs> if, it, if sort of the younger crowd today watch House of the Dead, I think it would actually legit blow their minds. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i guess that could be a wrap on this bonus episode of bead versus the living dead and thank you marcus for coming on this very first one to chat about one of the worst zombie films ever made at least by general consensus uh with me oh yeah man i mean now that i think about it what i was on the i was on the first episode of b versus living dead my first review for you guys was Army Army of the Dead. Mm -hmm. My first uh, podcast I did with you guys was Bad Lieutenant. Yep. <laughs> you know, thank you so much for allowing me to come on and do another first, you know, for you and, um, you know, your bonus episodes. And, you know, this is my 10th one. And mm -hmm. I um, I can't wait to do another 10 with you and discuss these films, rant and rave and have fun. So, you know, thank you so much for having me on once again. Oh, you're always welcome, Marcus. And thank you once again for coming on the show. And I know you'll be back, whether on more bonus episodes in the future or the main episodes of the show. Yeah, once again, thank you everyone for listening to this bonus episode of Bead vs. the Living Dead. Now, I don't know what the next bonus episode is going to be because compared to the main series, like I know exactly what all those episodes are going to be throughout the year. But with the bonus ones, I am just going to pick films at random at any time. So it could be a little bit of a surprise once they're released. And also, I guess it depends on which who which guests are available and who's ready to go or or I or if there's a film that I feel like you know what I want to tackle this movie 
this week. So I can't say what the next bonus episode is going to be, but once again, keep a lookout for it very soon once it is dropped. But like I said, the bonus episodes of the show will drop in between all the main episodes. So Marcus, where can people find you on the internet this week? Well, you can find me on Facebook and Letterboxd, uh, Marcus Will Turner. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram with uh, Ego Critic Demise. And of course, you can find me on the Super Network. I will definitely be writing more reviews for you guys soon. And of course, you can find me right back on here with B versus the Living Dead. Indeed, indeed. And if people want to find me personally, you can find me on social media via Twitter, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd under Bead Jemine as one word. And also you can follow all my work and also all the other podcasts that I co-host with Supermarcy over at supermarcy.com and, and as well as all podcast streamers everywhere via the Super Network podcast feed. Now, in terms of this show, you can follow all things Bead versus The Living Dead along with its spin-off show, Bead and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake on all podcast streamers everywhere via the Bead versus the Living Dead podcast feed. And also you can follow the show on social media on Twitter and Blue Sky under Bead VSTLD and as well as Facebook under Bead versus the Living Dead. So, yep, that is the end for this bonus episode of Bead versus the Living Dead. I hope you all enjoyed this one. See everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bead vs. the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at BeadVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.